emphasis on the quick part of the review, all right? We began with talking about prayer for evangelism. And while in most areas you'll hear people, oh, pray for so-and-so that they would get saved, we don't find that in Scripture. Rather, what we found differently in Scripture, the instructions regarding prayer with respect to evangelism is pray for believers to have opportunities to share Christ. And that is a very different perspective that we don't often pick up on. So we talked about the necessity to pray maybe a little bit differently rather than praying for salvation or praying for opportunities to share Christ with others. Uh, Certainly we desire others to be saved, and I'm not going to say you're doing wrong praying for people to get saved, Uh, usually it's family members, loved ones, you know, we pray for them to respond to the gospel, but in, in terms of what biblical example is and command is, is to pray for us to have opportunities to share the gospel. So that's where we began, is what it means to pray for evangelism. We're really praying for the opportunity to share that testimony. Whether people accept it or reject it isn't really on us. What is on us is that we communicate the gospel and we pray for those opportunities to do so. And then the second thing we talked about is confronting sin in a morally relative world. Uh, it should be relativistic. In a re- in, where we have moral relativism, and so nobody did anything wrong. We're all you know, just humans, and there is no conviction. Without the conviction of sin, without recognition, I'm a sinner, there is not going to be any interest in salvation. What are you being saved from? And that is a big issue in our day to day now when everything is uh, individualized and so what is right for you isn't right for me. There is no absolutes, which we can see coming down into the second one as well, or the third one on our list. And so we find that in this relativism where there is no moral high ground, there is no absolutes, trying to convince people and confront people with sin is difficult. We talked about that process of doing that, starting with their own ideas of right and wrong and progressing carefully along to to stir up and to uh, draw out their moral conscience uh, beginning with how would you want to be treated and what is wrong what do you view as people you know if someone did this to you do you think it's wrong well then it's wrong for you to do it to others correct and so we go from their moral view and then we move forward to ultimately God's moral view of being sinners and disqualified from heaven because we don't match his moral position, his holiness. And so we talked about that process of moving people, and there should be a result of that. The result of that should uh, produce something. It should either produce anger at rejecting them because they don't like to be called sinners, Uh, And if we're doing our job well, we'll either have them be angry at us for judging them, for calling them sinners, whatever, or, and get uh, uh, real snooty about that, you know, or the other result that, uh, which, and there is a spectrum in between, I'm not giving you the two extremes, uh, is that they are going to be sorrowful. And that is your objective, because the Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance. If they're not sorry for sin, they will never turn from it. Even when you're sorry for sin, they don't always turn from it. But it is certain that you must be sorry to turn from it, or you'll continue to embrace your sin. And so godly sorrow leads to repentance. We want to produce that. We want to see that. We are not convicting the world of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We are confronting the world with these standards, with their sin, and that they are all guilty before God in his throne and therefore disqualified from heaven, deserving of death. And that is where we want them to be. We want them sorrowful. And it's okay to have tears. In fact, it's preferred. And one of the questions we asked was, where are all the tears? Why is no one weeping to come to Christ? When they should be, they should have a sorrow in their heart that produces that uh, emotion, if you will, or that feeling, that sensation that leads them to weep before the Lord. Not because we have manipulated them with good eloquence, but rather we have confronted them with their moral decay and bankruptcy. Okay, 
And then we looked at revealing truth in a subjective world where there is no truth, there are no absolutes. And we worked through that process again, starting at where they are at uh, and moving ourselves carefully and deliberately toward God's word as truth. And then uh, using ourselves as an example of what are you willing to die for? Uh, what is your what is truth and and the what it really means to believe something that's true because you will not waver in it and we should be unwavering in our position simply as a testimony to truth but then we eventually want to get them our goal is to get them into God's word we talked about defending the scriptures and presenting the scriptures as God's word and then to use the scriptures to communicate the truth of the gospel last week we looked at you at uh, using our Bibles to lead people to Christ. And the passages that we use uh, and the order we would use those are something similar. Uh, you don't have to use those precise passages, but those same ideas that were communicating the passages that I did share last week. So that brings us now to our fourth out of five. So we're, four, we're not four-fifths done. We are three-fifths completed. So now we're going to start the fourth. The fourth element of evangelism in the end times is going to be presenting the gospel in a self-absorbed world. And again, uh, we are going to kind of have to relearn some things from a generation ago where uh, we understood some concepts uh, because they were prevalent in our society. And now those concepts are largely gone. Not totally. If they were totally gone, we'd be in a miserable state. But they are largely uh, not understood or appreciated, well, at least not appreciated in our culture today. And so we want to talk about those here. And so let's get into it a little bit. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. By the way, being self-absorbed is nothing new, correct? So nothing new under the sun. The problem isn't that there weren't self-absorbed people in the past. It's that now it characterizes our entire society. And that is different. Very different. Um, even in our American history, that hasn't been the case. There are self-absorbed people, I don't d doubt that, all through history. But as a society at large to be so self-absorbed um, is what we are confronting now, what we are having to deal with as a church where we can't, and, and the lack of contact even with the ideas uh, uh, that the gospel requires. So let's go ahead and look in Luke chapter 18 where Christ is going to deal with just such a person. Chapter 18, right? Yeah, and verse 18. Okay, let's go to verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, and by the way, in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19, we found out that he's a young guy and he's rich. Rich, young ruler. Okay, and that's where the title comes from, it's a combination of the three synoptic gospels. So a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is, but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So where did Jesus start? He started confronting you with sin, the law, the commandments. You know the commandments. And his claim was, I have kept them since I was a little guy. Is that a little self-absorbed? At least self-congratulatory? Not acknowledging it? All right. And Jesus Christ already introduced the idea of what is good. God is good. So Jesus Christ did that kind of the reverse of the order that we did. He says, are you as holy as God? Do you think I'm as good as God? Because I am. Because he's Jesus Christ. He is God incarnate. You call me good and you're right, but no one is good but God. That just went right over the guy's head. But it's there, isn't it? And then he says, have you kept the commandments? He says, all these things I've kept from my youth. Verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. You need to pray the sinner's prayer. And get baptized. Here's, my, here's, your, here's a card and a track. 
so you can pray the sinner's prayer. Then you can have eternal life. Isn't that what your version says? You have the wrong version, apparently, because that's what mine, I'm pretty sure it's. It's the modern version. <laughs> no, here's what Jesus Christ says. You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? Not who will be saved, who can be saved. But he said, These things are impossible with men, but the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. And he says, surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, we, I use this as a springboard to really talk about some things. We're going to be referencing, again, some sub-information, some points underneath this. It's going to take us a couple of weeks to do that. And so... We find this person who has authority, who has youth, and of course, young people know everything, especially when you give them authority, uh, and he's got wealth. And boy, if you have wealth and authority and you're young, you must, you're, you're happening, right? You're, you're the pinnacle of success. And he comes and says, oh, I want to make sure I inherit eternal life. And, and I wonder sometimes if he inherited all of his wealth. He says, I want to inherit a little bit more. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean he got to where he is by his own effort. Uh, more likely he inherited maybe even his authority and his wealth. But he says, I want to inherit eternal life. What must I do? And we go, wow, this is a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel, and let me tell you all the good things Jesus did for you. Because that is how we have characterized the gospel. Let me tell you how you can have eternal life. And we have tracks that say that, how you can have eternal life. And we present it kind of like the carrot on the stick. The gospel is all these good things that God wants you. God loves you, and he wants all of these wonderful things for you. And that is our presentation of the gospel, and it feeds something. It feeds the self-absorbed person. Look, you can get all this stuff. You can get your sins forgiven for free. You can get a place in heaven for free. You can get all this for free, for free, for free, for free, Just and then we make it really simple. And yes, I'm describing easy believism, pray the sinner's prayer, and wham, bam, it's all assured. And let's go to 1 John chapter 5 and see that if you... I write these things, you may know that you have eternal life. And we talked about why I don't include that verse in my gospel presentation last week. And so we have this easy believism concept that we sell, and we are selling it because it's not the truth, and it is very appealing because we are making ourselves salesmen instead of evangelists. Yes, the word evangel means good news. Jesus Christ wants to share with him good news. If you look at the conclusion of the matter, what is he offering him? Eternal life. And even some good, really good things in this present world. We find that out later in his interaction with the disciples. And he says, listen, you know, if we, if we sacrifice, if we surrender, if we respond by faith to you, um, what's going to happen to us? And he says, you know, if it costs you something to become a believer, don't worry. In fact, that's your preferred condition. Because of what it costs you on earth, God will always restore, even on earth. It's a very powerful promise that Jesus Christ has that most people don't believe. Maybe even some of you. You mean it's going to cost me my family. It's going to cost me my, my house. Uh, I left my house. Uh, it uh, cost me a relationship with my parents, a brother's wife, children, all to 
seek after to pursue the kingdom of God, um, Jesus Christ seemed to indicate that a real faith commitment is probably going to be costly and probably should be understood as costly. Because it demonstrates a genuine faith. Unfortunately, in the Western world, um, and uh, we, it is just too easy to become a Christian and not have it cost us anything. And we've sold that gospel very effectively for generations in the West, not only in this country, but other Western countries. We've sold that, uh, that, that it's easy to, and there's all this you're going to get, and it's not going to cost you anything in between. And, and we notch our belts every time someone prays that prayer, gets baptized, and uh, it doesn't matter how they live their life, the balance of their days, will go to their funeral, and they'll talk about, oh, they're for sure in heaven because I was there when he prayed this prayer, and we heard him uh, use Jesus' name in the baptismal waters, and therefore we know that they're in heaven. They've lived like the devil ever since, They've done the works of their father, the devil, ever since. But we're going to assure everybody here, and particularly the family, that they are certainly in heaven today because of this one or two acts that they did in the past. This is completely unbiblical evangelism. And we are feeding a self-absorbed world. It's all about me, 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 me. What am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of this? And there's too many times, like I said, we just dangle this carrot in front of people, hoping to lead them to a point that they are going to uh, pray the sinner's prayer. But they really don't pray a sinner's prayer because they still don't really believe they're a sinner. Does this man think he's a sinner? No. That's why he's going to go away sad. And that word sad is not the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's the misery of realizing um, this guy's asking too much of me. Because we have devalued what it means to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, uh, we, we have devalued what those two statements mean to the original readers of that passage in Romans 10, we have sold easy believism to people not ever needing to reconsider their selfishness. Because we offer them these carrots. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have your past uh, washed away and become a new creature. And you can have a guaranteed place in heaven and this wonderful relationship with God, and it costs you nothing. And it's a gift of God. You simply have to receive it. We haven't waited for the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. We haven't even confronted them with it. Jesus certainly confronts him with his sin immediately. And because he has already, in a reference, already recognized truth, and he also deals with that, that whole idea, and the concept, well, Here's my instruction to you. I want you to sell everything you trust in. Sell it all. And that wasn't it. It wasn't just that. And I had one uh, guy, I think it was a commentator, might have read online or some, some preacher maybe, that says, oh, it was because he was insensitive to poor people. Christ was trying to teach him about being insensitive to poor people, and that's what's keeping him from heaven. Nonsense. It's because he trusted in his wealth, and that was keeping him from trusting in Jesus fully. So get rid of that, and that's not the end. That's the beginning of this journey of faith for this man. He says, sell all you have, distribute it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. An invitation to be his disciple. That word follow me is become my disciple. Get rid of the things you are trusting in in your life right now. Transfer that trust. Remember we talked about this morning, you don't need more faith, you have lots of faith. It's just misplaced. 
And so transfer that trust you have in your wealth and trust in me. And I don't mean just in your heart. I mean really. Don't just say cognitively, okay, I don't trust in my wealth, but I'm going to hold on to it. There is a couple in the book of Acts that did that. They gave lip service to that, didn't they? And they died the day they did it because it was a lie. Although we understand that this is a lie to say, to make the confession, I don't trust in my wealth while we're hoarding wealth um, and, uh, and refuse to sacrificially give. That I'm not going to do this so that I can serve the Lord financially this way and care for others this way, even though it costs me uh, wealth. And, and I'm going to take care of the poor. If the church did that, we would be extraordinary testimony if we had that kind of faith. And so we, Jesus Christ doesn't tell them, just transfer your heart's allegiance from your money to me. He's saying, get rid of that because it's keeping you out of the kingdom of heaven and come follow me. And the treasures in heaven are stored up for you based upon that first act. And now, as my disciple, you will be developing all the other benefits that come from being my disciple. We seem to turn this upside down. And we want to avoid doing that. So we want to present the gospel in a different manner that's going to challenge their self-absorption. In fact, I would contend with you, if you don't do that, and you're selling a selfish gospel, you're doing a disservice to people, and you're doing something to them that uh, I'll call inoculation evangelism. An inoculation is a vaccine, not, not the gene therapy they're selling as a vaccine, that's just a lie, but a real vaccine is taking some dead cells, let's say the measles, and they're injecting it into you. Um, and you're supposed to catch a very mild case of measles because your body builds antibodies against the measles, and your, the extent of your measles fight is right here in the injection site. And you build antibodies to the dead cells that aren't alive, and therefore you don't catch the measles, but you learn to identify what the measles look like, and you attack them, and now your body knows if you ever see that again, attack. And you have the tools to do that. That's a vaccine, a true vaccine, an inoculation. We'll use that word instead of vaccine because of its abuse today. Language is dynamic. You have to change your vocabulary because of our world. They change the meaning of all kinds of words all the time. Okay, aren't you gay? I hope you are. For real, not the modern concept. Stupid. Don't you hate how they appropriate things to themselves that are totally illegitimate for them? Just like the rainbow. That really irks me. Anyway. Sidebar, there we go. Put that away. All right, so we don't want to do inoculation evangelism. And easy believism is exactly that. I hold the carrot out in front of you. Don't you want your sins forgiven? Don't you want eternal life? Don't you want to be in heaven when you die? And we hold it out there, and of course they're salivating. Oh yeah, that's one. That'd be wonderful. And it doesn't cost me anything. No, you just trust in Jesus. He paid the whole price. And and just pray this prayer. That's it. I just pray the prayer, and I get saved, and I get all that good stuff. Yes. Pray the prayer. Well, we might add, pray the prayer and get baptized because you're good Baptists, right? So you have to add baptism in there, right? So we have to have that. Um, not understanding what baptism really used to mean, but we sell it. And so we sell the sinner's prayer plus baptism, and that's all now. You're set forever. You are set forever. You don't ever have to worry about that again. Check that off your list. And, and uh, uh, what a happy occurrence it was that we met today, and you got to hear that, and you got to pray that. Jesus Christ seems to have a very different approach to this, doesn't he? He seems to be wanting to make it hard for him to get saved, not easier. He seems to be willing to let him suffer 
in sorrow for what he could not attain because he didn't know what it really meant to trust in Jesus. We have been sold down the river because we think only believe, but what we mean by believe is wishful thinking. Not what the Bible means by believe, which is full trusting faith. We talked about faith this morning in the message this morning at the end. We're going to talk about some more next week. But what real faith is, is complete, dependable, depending trust. I completely trust in him. And that means I'm going to surrender trusting in myself. And when we present the gospel, we should present it in that fashion. At some point, we need to use certain words. And we're going to look at three words particularly that our, word does, that our world doesn't understand. And that is what love is, what hope is, and what surrender is. Because we have trained the world that God is love, now they come and they have this accusation. What is their accusation? How can a God, a loving God, let little children be sick? chronically, or abused, or starving. How can a loving God allow that? Why? Because we have miscommunicated what love is to people. And their self-absorbed definition of love is what? I'm going to make your life perfect. I'm going to fulfill all your needs and all your desires, no matter how absurd they are. And we have a whole foundation in this country that is built on that sentiment of concept of love. It's called Make-A-Wish Foundation. Right? We're going to make your wishes come true as the act of love for this dying child. I'm pretty sure all of their number one wishes, they weren't dying. And the only people that can make that wish come true are those with the gospel on their lips. Because we're offering eternal life. But at what cost? Well, certainly Jesus Christ laid that foundation. But what does it really mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? To trust in Jesus? And we have watered it down to the point of of a, a single prayer. And so Jesus Christ doesn't do that. He says, listen, we're going to describe for you what love is. And so we're going to do that uh, a lot next week um, because we want to start there. You know, God loves you. What does that mean? You can't just say that anymore because they've been raised by parents who showed their love for them by giving them every single thing they want. You cannot believe how many millennial parents think that that is showing love to their children. Many parents in my generation thought that. Uh, I don't know that it was the majority. I'd love to say that most parents in my generation, no, that's not true. In, In my parents' generation, I would say the majority understood that that was not real love. Giving your kid everything they want. I think probably the majority of the parents in the 60s and 70s kind of thought that was what real love was because they thought they reinvented love in the 60s. Okay, So much so we called them what? No, love children were illegitimate ones. Born out of immorality. Love child. Okay? But we were, we were all about love. Love, peace and love, brother. Peace, love, and tie-dye. That's what it's about, man. And if you think they were that far off, those people in the 60s, which are just slightly older than me, um, you know why they're more than happy to vote for marijuana? Because they were all smoking it back then. <laughs> okay? Now it's legal. They're happy. I'm, I'm not, I don't know how old the people were. The 400 in line, uh, April 1st, at, in, before sunlight. I just wonder how many of them were in their 60s. But um, They've been doing it anyway. They just do, grow their own in the mountains for years. Um, so uh, we misdefine love, and now we, have, we're, we are really at least two generations from understanding what real love is. So now, love is me um, 
paving the way for my child. As soon as we find out that we've conceived and we have this, this uh, positive pregnancy test, and certainly by the time we, we do the reveal, you know, poof, whether it's pink or blue, and we have the reveal, uh, there should be orange because, you know, we don't know what gender is anymore. That's not absolute either. Think about that a little bit. That's how far we are from this truth concept. And so now from that point on, we want to strategize and plan our way and so that they never lack anything. They have the best of everything and, 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 and all the way through their life and, and into their adulthood. And, and I've seen that. I've seen that from parents in my generation who parented their children and a disaster it was. It was a complete disaster. All you're doing is raising self-absorbed children that think the world surrounds them, or I'm sorry, that, that revolves around them. <laughs> That's what they believe. And they are entitled to everything. Where did the concept of entitlement come from? It's from quote-unquote loving parents who didn't understand what real love was. That wasn't true by most parents in the 60s. 50s, but it was of their children somehow. It might have something to do with us secularizing our society. But we come to the point now that we're two generations into this, and now entitlement is the norm, and parents thinking, well, I have to have my kid in the best schools with the best clothes. they got to have name brands. they got to have the best phone. they got to have a phone. Can you imagine that children live for thousands of years without phones? They wandered all over the world. But they were home by supper. Oh, it was a different world. Yes, it was. That's my whole point. And we want to plan out everything so that our kid has every advantage, that if, if, they, if they're ever sad, it's my fault, because we believe what the psychologist told us back there a couple of generations ago that says this is mommy's fault, this is daddy's fault, when... when, when self-absorbed adults went to psychiatrists because they had miserable lives. Well, tell me about your relationship with your mother. How were you raised? Oh, it's all her fault. It's all your father's fault. No personal responsibility. And now we, because we are trained that all of our problems are our parents' fault, we don't want our kids to have problems, so now we have to be perfect parents, and that means we have to make sure that our children have nothing but the best their whole life so I could not give them the psychosis that I had as a young person, which, by the way, every teenager has angst. You know why? Because they have hormones. It has nothing to do with their parents. It has something to do with them going like, they can't decide if they're a child or an adult. So sometimes they want to play with dolls, and other times they want to drive. They can't decide between them. And unfortunately, that's stretching in later and later now, <laughs> into the 40s. <laughs> but we have this concept of love that we need to communicate. God loves you. But now we have to talk about what is love. You can't just make that statement because in their mind they think, well, that means God has to do everything for me and any problems I have are his fault. Because that's what we have trained society to think of. If your parents love you, they will make sure you have no problems your whole life. They'll take care of you in every little thing, every detail of your life. They'll make sure that you are happy, 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 happy. And in fact, we call the meals happy meals. And if you don't, <laughs> you know what? It doesn't make any of them happy. It makes them brats is what it does. Because we have a a wrong view of love. So let's define that, and we have to do that. And we're going to really work on that a lot next week. This is the overview of this point. Oh, i got ten minutes to do two more words. The second word we're going to look at is hope. Because what we are offering people is hope. The biblical concept of hope is not wishful thinking. It is not... Uh, I hope so. The biblical concept of hope is a sure expectation. A sure expectation. And God has given us a sure expectation. That's what we're offering people. You have this sure expectation, a hope of eternal life in heaven. Not 
wishfully thinking you do, but rather that you have a sureness about it. And that is part of this offer, that you can worship God in spirit and truth. You can worship God anywhere. And we already did the study on the Samaritan woman with Jesus. Here we find Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler. He wants, I mean, he, he's, he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. He had access to all the teaching available in Jerusalem. And he comes up to Jesus and he wants one more opinion um, because the other ones somehow weren't satisfied. They didn't give him a sureness, a confidence that he would be in heaven. This guy didn't know if he was going to make it to heaven. That's a really serious problem. And he used the right vocabulary. He's in the right circles. He says, good teacher, good rabbi. That's what he's saying. Good rabbi. What shall I do? To, what's your opinion? I want your reference point because I have everything of this world, but I want to make sure I have eternal life, which is, by the way, what every pharaoh wanted, which is why they learned how to embalm and they buried their slaves with them and they buried all this food with them and they buried all this stuff with them to enjoy in the afterlife. You don't think rich people worry about what happens after death? They worry about so much more than poor people they have nothing else to worry about. So they think about it all the time. So it's okay to confront rich people. It's just realizing it's going to be rough because Jesus said it's going to be hard because they have to surrender. Oh, I don't use that word yet. That's my third word. So I, I keep using it. I don't want to yet. So we want to understand hope and communicate what it means to have a hope in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. I place my hope in him. Not wishful thinking, but sure expectation. What do I expect from Jesus Christ? Not just for me, but in general terms, what is my sure expectation that gives me a full confidence that I am destined for heaven and that Jesus Christ will be with me every day from this day forward, that all the promises of God are yes, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, that all the promises of God are there, that they are my possession. And not in a sense of for me, 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 but in terms of to bring glory to Christ and this hope. And it says that in this hope we should not be ashamed. So, that, so I have a confidence. Hope is about a confidence. Not wishful thinking and something that probably won't happen. Oh, I hope so. You know, we have changed the word hope from leveling confidence. So at some point, we need to communicate to people that, listen, this offer of the gospel is going to transform your life from one of having no hope, having no confidence, to not knowing, to being confused and to being lost, to being uh, questioning, to, to just, in fact, the opposite. We actually totally reverse the word. And so you're hopeful that you're going to heaven. I'm going to tell you how can you be sure you're going to heaven. And that's the real use of the word hope. Confident expectation. You haven't acquired it yet, but it is fully yours. You're just waiting to inherit it. And that's the word inheritance here. How can I inherit eternal life is the question. He wanted to know, how can I know that it's mine? It's just a matter of time. That's what it means to inherit. Okay? So my children know what they're going to inherit when I die. It's just a matter of time before it happens. Unless the Lord comes back, then they're out. <laughs> okay? Well, they can take it all if they want. If they're left behind, it's their fault. They know the truth, and they should be living it. And they should be with me and have a different expectation. And so they know, all right? Um, here's the will. You can see, okay, it goes, this is what goes to who. Okay, got that. That's the will. I have a confident expectation because it's a legal document that when my parents pass away, here's what's coming to me. That's hope, biblically. And that's really what we're talking about. What does it mean to inherit eternal life? He doesn't want to live his eternal life. He wants to inherit it, which means he wants it to be his legal possession waiting for it to become his in actual possession. So you're the legal heir, but it doesn't take effect until death of the testator. 
And there's a whole thing about this in the Bible somewhere, I think, about the testator in the air, right? And so we have it ours, and so we want to communicate somewhere in our gospel presentation what Christ is really offering us. Not only in terms of today, but in the future, what is it? Well, a covenant, it could be another word. If we, but again, people aren't familiar with the word covenant. Just like they misidentify hope, uh, and we're really contrasting real hope to what they really are living in now, which is despair. The opposite of biblical hope is despair. That I don't know. I have nothing to cling to. I have nothing real to give me a confidence that this is my future. Boom, 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 boom. And I have this, and, I, and people get all worried. Like, oh, this is cool. Why is this cool? Because I've been waiting for this for a long time. I've been waiting 20 years for stuff going down these days. 20 years? I thought you've been a believer for like uh, a lot longer than that. Yeah, almost 40 years. But it's only been 20 years I've understood what the end times are like. Sufficient enough to say, here's what I'm looking for. I'm waiting for this stuff to come down the road. There's still some things I'm waiting for. I see them on the near horizon. They get excited to me. I'm not despairing of them. I am ready to embrace them because I have a hope that is sure in Christ. I know it's coming because God told us, not only in the distant future, but even in the near future. We have a confidence. This is the offer of Christ for salvation. It's not just for heaven, you know, and that's what we sell. We're selling heaven. We're not selling everything in between. We should be talking about the gospel, about the good news, about everything in between. Come follow Jesus the rest of your days. Isn't that what Jesus ended with? Come follow me. Transfer your trust from all this junk to Jesus Christ. And come follow me. We instinctively know that this is really evangelism. Because in Matthew 28, 19, 20, what does it tell you? Go therefore and, what does it say? Make disciples. That's make followers of Christ. It doesn't say make converts. Make people to pray this prayer and add them to your church membership. No, he says make disciples and then baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and then teach them to observe whatever I've commanded you. That's the evangelism. Not just the front end Okay, there's four concepts here. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. Okay, so we have four things. We've got to go find them. We don't wait for them to come into church. That means you have to do evangelism. You have more opportunities to do evangelism than I ever will. Okay, because I deal with Christians almost exclusively. I have a rare engagement with unbelievers, but usually it's, not significant enough that I can sit down and have lengthy conversations with them. It's in their place of work, usually. It's their place of business because I'm doing business with them. And it's hard to say, clock out and come talk to me. <laughs> they can't always have the liberty to do that. You have much more substantial contact. So go, make disciples, make followers of Jesus. That's a very different thing than pray the sinner's prayer uh, and we are sure to get the baptism part in there, but then it says, then teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. So Jesus Christ's statement here is consistent. Here's the evangel, the evangel, the good news, is that you can have a confident hope, but that hope is to come follow me. I, I'm going to willing, I'm going to, I, <laughs> what we are offering people is to transform their lives. There's a cool song, that's out there, New Lives for Old. You ever heard that song? New lives for old, warm hearts for cold. I got a deal for you this day. Come on, tell me some of you know that song. Just my family. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it's probably just because they heard me sing it. All right, I want you all to go get on Google, Grandpa Google, Google the thing, go to YouTube, whatever, and let, I don't know who sings it. It's called New Lives for Old. It's not called that? What's it called? 
It's on your phone. You have a, such a good mind, you should use it more. Don't trust your phone to keep that stuff. What is it called? Well, just type, I just gave you the first thing, the, the lyrics of the chorus. New lives for old, warms hearts for cold. I got a deal for you today. Just step right this way. New lives for old. That's what you are offering. You're not offering these little self-absorbed little things. Oh, your sins are forgiven. Oh, you get to go to heaven. That's, that, that, that's involved in what we're offering. But the gospel is about getting rid of self and becoming like Christ. Getting rid of your entire miserable life and getting a whole new life. Did Jesus use a term for that in John 3? Yeah, born again. This is our hope. Don't sell short the gospel by boiling it down to be um, alluring to self-absorbed people. Because they're going to stay self-absorbed people with this little prayer in their hip pocket and they're going to keep living miserable lives. You are selling a new life to them. I use the word selling. You are offering a new life to them. You're not getting anything in return. Well, you might in heaven, I don't know, um, a crown of something. Uh, but you are offering them new life, a transformed life. Don't sell it cheap. If you're selling sins forgiven in a place in heaven and it doesn't mean anything everywhere else, well, that's what everyone else is offering, and you can get that with this little prayer, and then they... Then if I come to them and say, hey, God wants to transform your life. You fed up with your life yet? It's full of sin and misery and despair. I can fill it with love, hope. Hope, love as defining God's word. I have to define for them. Hope as defining God's word. I have to define for them. Use different words maybe. I'm going to give that to them. That's what I'm offering that Christ wants for you is a new life. But no, we want to boil the gospel down to these two little dangling carrots of forgiveness and heaven. When God says, I want to take your life and give you a totally new one. That's good news. That's what he tried to do for this rich, young ruler. Most of the people you're going to encounter are going to be rich. You know why? Because they're Americans. And we are rich. Granted, a lot of it's debt, but we are rich. My son found out what real debt was about a few weeks ago when we were at this guy's business. And, you know, he's a successful businessman, multiple businesses. He's got locations here, locations there. And then he told my son, he's like, yeah, I got into trouble back there. And I got this, you know, I got $16 million in debt. They called my loan. Was it $16 million? $16 million in debt. So you had to sell some properties and stuff like that to pay the interest. Okay, and you thought he was a successful businessman. He's just in debt. Okay, so most of the people you're going to be sharing the gospel with are rich, may or may not be young. Or do they have authority? Are they rulers? In our society, they are. This concept of authority is uh, that they have freedom to self-direct their life. In other words, are they, do they have that kind of authority in their life that they can walk away from their job whenever they want to? They can choose whose authority over them. Okay? Uh, can they choose to walk away from relationships whenever they want to? Do they have that kind of liberty and so authority and liberty are very close. They're, they're really near kinsmen, okay? So when you see a rich young ruler, he had authority over himself, and we don't know what others. So you're going to encounter people who are rich, may or may not be young, but have a, that kind of authority, whether it's real or they imagine they have that authority. You know, because they say no 
to their parents when they're like three, right? And we go, well, that's naughty and that's bad, that didn't need discipline, but then they say it when they're 13. And then they say it when they're 23, and then they say it when they're 33. Because they still think they rule. They think they have all the authority. Because we've, sur- we've given that up. Second word, third word, my time has passed, um, is surrender. And this needs to be part of our vocabulary. Surrender still means surrender today, and that's why I like it. Are you willing to surrender your life to Jesus? Discipleship following Jesus requires surrender. In fact, Jesus, the, the, we're going to use the passage where Jesus says, uh, come follow me. Oh, let me go bury my, let me go do this, let me go do this first. Uh, no, no, let's go do it. If you're that attached to that, you're not surrendered. And so surrender is the third word we're going to be discussing. And I think it's a good word. It still means what it means today. It's just a concept that people don't acknowledge the power of surrender. It's like we talked about this morning, the power of submission. They view it as weak rather than as powerful. Imagine all the lives that would have been saved if the guy in Ukraine would have just surrendered. Yeah, Russia's bad. Do you think the international community would have taken care of that? Yes, if you really love your people, just surrender for their lives' sake. And then go into exile, get the community together, and say, we're going to boycott you to the nth degree until you just withdraw. But you see, we see surrender as a weakness instead of as a position of strength, as something to be admired. Um, But so many wars, all you have to do is humble yourself, and so many of them could be avoided. So many lives could be saved. But we have egos involved. And so when we talk about this, um, the, the response to ego is not ego, it's surrender. And so we want to communicate that. So those are the three categories we're going to study in the next three weeks, Sunday nights, okay? And maybe, uh, uh, yeah, I think I can handle it in three. Surrender might take us two weeks, but we'll see, okay? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Help us to communicate a gospel that is genuine, that is real. It is a fantastic offer that you have provided for through your Son, Jesus Christ. We marvel at what you have done for us and are yet to do for us. And Lord, we have sold it cheap in the past, and we ask for you to forgive us, but you give your church of doing that, of making it so much less significant than what it really is. Lord, help us to present what you really want, and that is to transform people's lives. that they might become followers of you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, with a sureness of their eternity and everything in between, and with an embracing of your love by loving you in response. We pray that you might help us in this study to, to delve into this and then to be able to communicate it to the lost better because of our time spent in your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.